0: Sunday marks the end of our Passionate Prayers series, which we began at the beginning of this month, and I, and I hope and pray and trust that it has been rewarding for you in, in, in various ways as you've come and, and studied with us through the prayers of Paul over the last several weeks, as you've prayed through the worship uh, of the prayer guide that Bill had put together for us uh, each week, or you've read through and prayed through the Psalms together as a church We studied what prayer looks like from the prayers of Paul. We began with a a passion, of course, for gospel grace. We saw that our prayers are flowing from a realization that the gospel is a gospel of grace, and our prayers are heard because of God's grace. Similarly with Paul, we are to pray with a passion for God's people, that we have people in mind as we pray, not only ourselves, but we pray on behalf of and for others, We pray with a passion for wisdom, spiritual wisdom that comes from the gospel as we are grown up in love and in wisdom and maturity in Christ. Last week, we saw from Ephesians chapter 1 that we are to pray with a passion for God's sovereignty, acknowledging that God is a God who can not only hear our prayers, but can fulfill them by his own sovereign power and will. And so we're going to end, fittingly, this, this morning with a passion for God's glory, that our prayers here are to be fueled and filled with a passion for God's glory. Now, it seems at this point almost trite to speak of God's glory, doesn't it? It's a phrase we use a lot, a phrase we use here a lot. When we speak about the glory of God, we want to glorify God. We want to give give glory to God. We, we speak a lot about God's glory, and the consequence of speaking much about a particular thing is that sometimes the meaning of that thing gets lost in the details. It sort of becomes secondhand for doing something Christian to doing something that is idealized or romanticized as right. But what does it really mean to consider God's glory that is, as we pray particularly, to pray with a passion for the glory of God that's not just in some nebulous idea that says God is bigger beyond surpassing understanding, which indeed he is, but with a real emotive and affected understanding of what it means for God to be glorious. So when we think about God's glory, and when we pray with a passion for God's glory, I mean that we consider and think on God in such a way that who He is, and all of His attributes, and all of His dealings with us, and all of His history in Scripture is put forth before us in our thoughts and in our prayers— as a means by which we give thanks to God, to which we we pour out our soul in gratitude and in amazement, adoration, praise. To think of God's glory is to think of, here's a word, the effulgence or the brilliance, the radiance of all that He is shining brightly before us where do we see the glory of Christ, of God? Most clearly, we see it in his son, Jesus, who was put forward by God as the picture, the image of who he is. His own glory is seen in his son, in the person and the work of Jesus. So really specifically, when we pray with a passion for God's glory, we are praying with the image of Christ before us. That is, with the understanding of, that Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God himself, who was taken on flesh, suffered, died, was risen again, and is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, makes way for us to pray with real passion, fervency. Now, glory has been all over the, the, the prayers that we've examined this month. In fact, it's not Paul if it's not about God's glory. But we're going to look particularly here at Ephesians chapter 3 because Paul kind of spends a significant amount of time speaking about what makes God glorious in the first place. The Scriptures are, are replete, of course, with many acts of God's splendor, of His works that make Him glorious. And there are pictures and glimpses of God's character we see in Scripture that we rightly can glorify God because of his love, his patience, his kindness, his justice, his mercy. But here Paul will point our attention to his love, and particularly his glory in the gospel that demonstrates the love. We all know John 3.16, God so loved the world or a helpful translation could be God demonstrated his love to the world by sending his only son. So Paul rightly recognizes what John the Apostle also recognized was that God's glory is seen in Christ, who was sent because of God's love for the world, for you and for I. So Paul, as he writes to the Ephesians church, the Ephesian church, wants to draw their attention in their mind's eye, to consider God's love as a picture of his his glory. Ephesians 3, verses 14, 14 through 21. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant that to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, glorify yourself in your word and help us in some small measure to see it, to glimpse it, and to be transformed by it that we could be filled further with the knowledge, the glory of God. Lord, we ask now that and much more, as your word tells us, in Jesus' name. Amen. The central question for you this morning is, do you adequately grasp the reality of God's love? Do you adequately grasp it? I mean, we know we think about it, we talk about it, much like we think and talk about God's glory, but have we considered and do we have a grasp on the reality of God's love, the, the magnitude and the severity of the love of God for us? More deeply, do you appreciate it? Have you come to have an affection? for it. Do you love the love of God? This is a question that we must answer. Because the answer to that question will be to the measure of the passion for God's glory that our prayers will possess. Our prayers are more enriched, zealous, fervent, when in our own hearts and minds, we are captivated and we have a grasp of God's love in the gospel. The main idea is this, that our prayers must be so controlled by the love of God to us in Christ, that the end or or the goal of all of our prayers is the praise of God's glory. Our prayers must be so controlled by the love of God to us in Christ that the goal of all of our prayers is the praise of God's glory. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. The question the student of the Bible must ask is, what reason is that? Well, that means you have to go up in the context and begin to read and see what Paul has been speaking of. But if you see in verse 1 of chapter 3, he began the same chapter that way. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he digresses, as Paul will sometimes do. And he picks back up again in verse 14. For this reason, again, so really to know the reason for which Paul comes to pray is not found in chapter 3 primarily, but in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians and he began to say, for this reason, I would pray. So chapters one and two of Ephesians are this beautiful picture of, of the work of God in saving and in choosing a people. So the, the, the brief, I mean, there's not enough time to get into fully this, chapters one and two, but here's the idea. In chapters one and two, Paul lays out the, the work of God from eternity past in choosing Saving, electing, adopting, uniting, converting, and gathering a people to himself. That's what's happening in chapters one and chapter two. we, We see God's sovereign and gracious work in choosing and saving and adopting and bringing both Jews and Gentiles together to form a new humanity, a new community in Christ. In fact, this new community, this new humanity, this one man in place of the two is being built together as a dwelling place from the Lord. Just look up briefly in verse 19 of chapter 2, as he says to the Gentiles, you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's going back to adoption in chapter 1. "'built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, "'Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, "'in whom the whole structure,' that's the church, "'the whole structure being joined together "'grows into a holy temple in the Lord.'" Notice the the mixed metaphor of something organic, living, and structural like a temple or a building. "'In him,' verse 22, "'you also are being built together "'into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.'" And so there's a gathering, but also a uniting and a building of, of the new community together in Christ to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is, the Lord dwells in the midst of His people. Romans chapter 5, the Spirit, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and the magnifies Himself in His presence among us in our own gatherings. So that he would glorify himself. Back in chapter 3, we see then in verse 10 that the Lord does all of this so that he could display that glory to the cosmos. He does all of this saving, predestining, electing, choosing, adopting, gathering, uniting, and forming and building so that, verse 10, through the church, through that temple, built together by the Spirit, through that new community, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea here in chapters one and two, now bleeding into chapter three, is that God has done all of the work of redemption so that he may glorify himself in the church, that the church would be a display, a mirroring of God's glory to the nations and beyond. So he does all this for his own glory. And so when he says there, I, for this reason I bow my knee, we, we can see there a bit of the motivation or the inspiration for his prayer. He prays because God has declared his purposes in building and forming a church. And that purpose is to the praise of his glory as he builds and establishes a temple. He's declared his purpose to build a house for himself in and among the church, a place of residence that he's taken up in our lives and in our corporate gatherings, in which each saint, each one of us, is a living stone, to borrow Peter's words, in the walls of the temple. So Paul's prayer here for spiritual maturity to be filled with, with the knowledge and the grace of God flows from a deep and abiding sense of God's powerful love for the saints, and it issues ultimately from a desire that God's purposes and redemption would be brought to fruition. That God is building; we are being built. the The work is continuing on into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So. For this reason, because God has done and is doing this work, Paul is compelled to pray for these things. Let's turn to the first petition in this, in this prayer. What does he pray? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. That's the first petition. That's the first request. The thing he's praying for is that the church would be strengthened with power in their inner being. Well, we've seen in chapter 1 last week that Paul has already prayed that our hearts would be enlightened, it says, to know the Lord's incomparably great power for us. We could see that in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1, if you turn there just for a moment. There we see that, that Paul prays that the hearts, the eyes of the hearts would be enlightened, that you may know with a knowledge what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritances in the saints in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So Paul has already prayed that the, the, the Ephesian church and the Christians who read his letters would come to know the immeasurable power of God to those in Christ. But here he prays now, not simply that you would know that power, but we would be strengthened by that power. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. So he prays that we would be strengthened by his power to have both A knowledge of God's power, as well as a living experience of that power. This experience is one of strengthening, resolving, growing, and and maturing. Ultimately, this is a prayer that Christ might be, as the Puritans would put it, formed in us, that Christ would be formed in us or in our inner being. The word there is inner man. What does it mean? What is our inner man, our inner being? What's who we truly are? The source of our character, our hopes, our affections, our desires, our will and our acting comes from the inner man. And it's this inner man that's being transformed, even while the outer man or the bodies waste away. This becomes really clear when you hear Paul In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, put it this way. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self, literally outer man, is wasting away, our inner self, that's the inner man, the same phrase used in our text, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The idea is that Paul wants us to be strengthened in our inner being, in our inner man, in a way that allows us and prepares us for the eternal weight of glory that we will inherit, even while our outer bodies waste away. Now, in their context, that was a very real issue, right? Persecution. Paul himself suffered probably health issues that kept him from from being able to do the things he desired to do. And free from persecution, thankfully, for the most part, in our context, we still recognize what it means for our, our outer bodies to waste away. As you get older, things become a little harder. Bones start cracking a little more. The hair thins out a little bit become a dad and all of a sudden you've got dad grunts getting up and out of chairs. The outer body wastes away, but the inner body, the inner man, who you truly are, continues to be transformed. Paul prays not for strength for the outer man. He prays that you would be strengthened in the inner man, in your inner being, and that God would do this for maturity, so prayer here is that Christ is formed in you. Your inner being is being transformed more and more. See, so Paul's primary concern here for us is that, is that he would pray for a display of God's mighty power in the domain of our inner being. That is, the, the, the place that controls our character, prepares us for heaven. That thing that is going to be eternal while the outer wastes away, that inner which is prepared for glory. be strengthened. Well, notice the means by which we are to be strengthened, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. So God mediates his divine power to strengthen us through his divine Spirit, which he's given to us in Christ. And the Spirit only comes to us as he mediates salvation. So, the implication here is that the Spirit's work of inward transformation, the strengthening of our inward being, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next, as Christ Himself is formed in us, the implication is that this is only possible to those who have first been saved by the work of Christ, those who have the dwelling of the Spirit in their midst, those for whom the gospel is being applied by the Spirit, day by day. That's the means by which the power of God's transforming work and strengthening work of our inner being comes from. It comes from the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift of God that comes only to those who, by God's grace, receive the work of Christ on the cross by faith. When Romans chapter 5 tells us that the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Spirit, he means this, that the gift of faith comes with the supply in the means of His Spirit. And the Spirit applies to us then the glorious riches. That's where this comes from. The power that comes to strengthen us doesn't come abstractly or from nothing, but it comes from the Father. He says that this would come, in verse 16, according to the riches of His glory. Where does God pull the power to strengthen your inward being from the riches of his glory. Friends, our God is lavished in glory. He is rich in glory. I don't think I could say it more eloquently than, than Jake had said it last week. But the idea here is that there is an immeasurable richness to the inheritance that we have in Christ, to know that God has an inexhaustible supply of power, inexhaustible supply and riches of grace and mercy and glory. He regularly, liberally pours out his spirit to strengthen us in our inward being. Why? The goal, it says, is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants you to be strengthened in your spirit, in the by the spirit in your inner being, so that verse seventeen, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the goal of Paul's praying here. For the first petition, to be strengthened with power by the spirit in the inward being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, wait a minute. You just said we have the Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Does that not mean we've already received that which Christ or Paul is praying for? Well. Yes, in one sense, it's true. We, we have the love of God poured into our hearts by the Spirit. That's the same Spirit of Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And so we know that to have the Spirit of Christ is to have, in a sense, Christ with us. So what does Paul mean that our inward beings would be strengthened by God's power, by the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? Well, let me, by way of illustration, try to explain it this way. If you've bought a house before, you you know that you're often starting with a blank slate. Each house you buy, the the walls may be bare or colors that you don't like. And it's a house, but it's not yet quite a home. You haven't left your mark on it. You haven't taken off the, the, the old carpet and laid down the new. You've not moved in your furniture or painted your colors. You haven't lived in it and made it your own. And that often takes time for any of those who've known my own saga of building a patio in my backyard. But at the end of the day, end of the month or the season or the years, you look at your house and you say, I'm glad we live here. It's ours. I'm comfortable. Or the so it is with Christ. When Christ moves in, if it were, we are in a very bad state in need of desperate repair. Now, we've been saved by grace, so we have the presence of Christ dwelling in us by His Spirit, but it does not mean that our inward beings are automatically made perfect and renewed completely beyond a state of needing repair. No, the the state of our inward beings, the state of our inward selves is so desperately in need of renovation. And so the Spirit goes to work. And the renovation required in our inward beings demands power, a tremendous amount of power. See, that's how wretchedness, how deep our wretchedness is, how, how, how much power it takes of God by the Spirit to renew and transform, to renovate our inward being, to strengthen us, to form us. But Paul's desire isn't simply that we would be transformed, but rather that in the transforming of our inner, in our inner beings, we would become a more suitable residence for the risen Christ. See, that's the goal. That, that When Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he means that your heart would be such a suitable home for the risen Lord because it has been transformed and renovated and made befitting for him. That's what it means. So the petition is that we would be granted strength with power by the Spirit, in our inner being, so that in our hearts Christ may dwell richly by faith. So Paul prays for power. But what's the effect of God's power? We continue to read. Paul's petition, first petition, it bleeds over here into a second. That we would have the strength to know the love of God. So he says that you would have strength, it says. Being rooted and grounded in love, have strength, verse 18, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This seems like almost one petition, one, one continued prayer. In many ways it is, but we can see there's really two, two requests, two petitions of God. First was that God would supply the power we need for the transformation of our inward beings. And then secondly... That because of the strength provided, we would come to know the love of God. We would know it in a real way. So, where does the strength come from? We've seen the power the Lord provides. It's where the strength comes from. He prays for strength, power, strengthened by power, verse 16 and 17, and that strength then to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the deep and inexhaustible love of Christ. So the power comes from the Lord. He provides the power as he makes us a dwelling place for Christ. And this is his work of, as Paul puts it, rooting and grounding us in himself, in Christ, and ultimately in love. That is, he's, he's affixing us, as it were, so securely to the only source of our life that as we receive power by God, we then receive it and experience it so it goes to the work of helping us comprehend what it means to know and love God. And not know and love him ourselves, but come to know and love his love. So this power enables us, the effect of this power is to comprehend God's love. Now it's true that we could not fully comprehend God's love. It's true that we could spend hours and hours and hours here trying to get to the bottom of what it means for God to love us, and we will never do it. Though Paul uses linear measurements like breadth and length and height and breadth, he, he goes on to say the love of God surpasses understanding. It surpasses all knowledge. And so you may grasp it and come to appreciate it and, and know the contours of it, but you will never fully plumb the depth of it. This isn't a a reason for us to not study it, not dwell on it, to not be moved by it, but rather it's an invitation to come and spend the rest of your life in it. The power that God provides by His Spirit to be transformed in our inner being, the effect of Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith is to have a more deeper comprehension of God's love that surpasses understanding. It's not to come to finally know and put a fine point on God's love, but to be continually in awe of his love as we come to comprehend it bit by bit. So what's the ultimate goal? What's the ultimate effect of the, the comprehension of God's love because of the strength that we now have by the spirit and the power given to us by God? At the end there, verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the ultimate goal. That's the, the goal of the second petition. If the first goal is that the, the Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, the second goal of his petition is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And the language here of being filled is speaking of completion, of maturity. So what Paul is praying for here is that the, the deep and affecting appreciation of for God's love in Christ would fill us or make us spiritually mature. See, love and maturity go hand in hand, don't they? You don't have to look any further than just considering the developmentally stunted children who have grown up in homes with wretched parents. When parents love their children, their children grow into maturity. But when parents do not care for their children, the development and the maturity of those children are stunted. And though their bodies may grow, they are not mature. This is what it means to know and comprehend as best as we humanly can the love of God in Christ. It's so that we would be filled up. So that we may become mature, that God would be completing that work which he began. As he builds us into a temple, he's maturing us as sons and as daughters because of his love. So we have to turn our attention to Christ. We need to turn our attention to the gospel. We can't believe it, and then tuck it away as sort of just a presupposition, and then move on to other things. You know, the gospel is central to what we believe. It's central to what we think about. It's central to what we do. And in the gospel, we see on display the love of God. Jesus's death shows us God's love. That though we are sinners, Christ would put himself in our place and suffer God's wrath for our sin. That's God's love the sin which you committed this morning on the way into church, as you thought about that person who got in front of you in the highway, or your short-tempered anger at your children, or that you're rolling of the eyes of your spouse, or your neglect and lack of obedience to your parents, Christ's death provides atonement for that sin and demonstrates God's love for you. That's the power of comprehending God's love, which fills you up and matures you as God's child. That's the goal. Christ dwells in your hearts through faith, and as you are strengthened by, this, by the power of God's Spirit, you are matured as you come to know God's love in Christ. Ultimately, there is a greater yet purpose for all of this. Paul puts the ribbon here on it in verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that same power which has risen Christ from the dead, the same power which Paul prays now that would strengthen the inner being so that they can comprehend the love of God, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. See, the ultimate goal and the ultimate purpose in knowing God's love is that God may be glorified. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. See, in this context, the, the, the idea that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think is, is not about answering any and all prayer. That's certainly true. God can do anything. But it's not simply about asking for the biggest thing you can think of. But rather, it's about recognizing God can meet all of our needs and he can fulfill all of our desires, again, according to the power at work within us. That is, when we think about what hope we have to change, we think about how deep our sin runs, how corrupt our souls really are, how wretched our minds really can be. What hope do we have in changing ourselves in order to please the Lord? How can we muster the strength to defeat sin if we are so radically controlled by it? Only God can change us. Only the power of God can overcome the corruption of our sin. That's the hope we have. His power, rather than working against us in judgment, actually works for us in redemption. It's not against us. The mighty torrent of God's wrath, which stands against those who are condemned because of their sin, is diverted because of Christ. And now the power of God works for us in redeeming us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the love of God and the power of God on display. So what hope do we have of changing ourselves? None. But God can do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. The undeserved blessing of the gospel then, the truth that God's power can change us because Christ was put forward as a propitiation and atonement for our sins, will yield the fruit of praise and glory to God. When he thinks about the power that's at work within us, what does he say? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus God is put forward himself and his son to be magnified among us, to be glorified. So then we see in our praying and in our praising this beautiful picture of God's love for us, which tells us we should sing, we should share, we should be grateful, we should pray. It yields the fruit of praise and glory to God. He says, to him be glory in the, in the church and in Christ Jesus. So our praying and our petitioning, yes, may be, bring these, these proximate goals to God. That is, we'd like to see these things answered. We, we pray for these brothers or these sisters or for that person to be saved. We pray for this provision. But those are proximate goals. Ultimately, we pray that God would be glorified in the church. Our ultimate goal in praying must be that God is glorified and the glory of God in the gospel is displayed in us. And friends, when we pray to that end, we know that it will be. As we are given strength to further and more deeply know and experience his love for us in Christ. So when we think about the Christian prayers, we must recognize that our praying then must be so controlled by God's love to us in Christ that the end goal of all of our prayers would be the glory and the praise of God. Let us go to the Lord now and pray. Father, Lord, take, take the inadequate picture, Lord, that I... I labor to paint of your love and drive it still further into our hearts. Recall to our minds many of the other passages that speak of your goodness and love to us and fill us with gratitude and gratefulness. Move us, God, to praise. Glorify yourself in us as we more deeply and fervently consider and meditate on your love in Christ. For it is the gospel that saves. In fact, as Paul says in Romans 1, It is the power of God for salvation. That's the gospel. And so you loved us and so demonstrated your love that you sent Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. that whomever shall believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, drive that truth so deep in us that you hit a well of praise and joy that would spring up in worship, that would draw to us the the riches of your glory and that we would be built up in love and in maturity, not for our sake, Lord, but for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.